Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster Vaccine Recombinant Adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com. Hello and welcome to the August 15th, 2023 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to letting you know what's new on annals.org over the past two weeks. First is a study of more than 50,000 women that found that continued breast cancer screening after age 70 was associated with a greater incidence of the cancer that likely would not have caused symptoms in the patient's lifetime. These findings suggest that overdiagnosis may be common among older women who continue screening. Recommendations about mammography screening in older women vary among different organizations because the balance of benefits and harms of screening in this population is unclear. Some previous research has indicated that the mortality benefit of screening may be limited to women under age 75. Possible harms of screening in older women include frequent false positives that require invasive testing and procedures. Consequently, some clinical guidelines consider overdiagnosis an important potential harm that screening recommendations should consider. A simple definition of overdiagnosis is detection of a cancer, often through screening, that would not have become clinically significant in a person's lifetime. Researchers from Yale School of Medicine conducted a retrospective cohort study of 54,635 women aged 70 years and older who had been recently screened for breast cancer. The authors found that the risk of overdiagnosis increased significantly with age. They report that among women aged 70 to 74, up to an estimated 31% of breast cancer found among screened women was overdiagnosed. In women aged 74 to 84 years, up to 47% of breast cancer found among screened women was overdiagnosed. They also found that the risk of overdiagnosis was highest in women aged 85 years and older who experienced up to a 54% rate of overdiagnosis. The authors also note that they did not see statistically significant reductions in breast cancer-specific death associated with screening in this population. These findings suggest that, along with the potential benefits of screening into older age, the potential harms of overdiagnosis should be explicitly considered. In an accompanying editorial, Dr. Otis Brawley of Johns Hopkins University highlights the frequency of overdiagnosis from cancer screening and the harms of overdiagnosis noting that the harms of overdiagnosis include complications from overtreatment, unnecessary anxiety, financial hardship, and unnecessary consumption of limited resources. Dr. Brawley believes that improved understanding of cancer biology is needed to avoid overdiagnosis. The increasing number of drug overdose deaths in the United States, mostly involving opioids, has prompted efforts to identify high-risk populations and offer preventive interventions. Thus, drug overdose risks of uncertain occupational groups could help identify high-risk populations. Healthcare workers regularly experience job stress and engage in physically strenuous tasks that could put them at risk for musculoskeletal injury that could result in opioid dependency. They also may have easier access to medications than people in other occupations. The next article aims to identify risk of fatal overdose in healthcare workers. Researchers from Columbia University analyzed a prospective cohort of 176,000 healthcare workers aged 26 years and older between 2008 and 2019. The authors evaluated six healthcare worker groups, physicians, registered nurses, other diagnosing and treating healthcare workers, health technicians, healthcare support workers, and social or behavioral health workers. 
The authors found that 0.07% of their study sample died of a drug overdose during the follow-up period. They found that compared with employed adults who were not healthcare workers, the adjusted hazards of drug overdose deaths were significantly increased for social and behavioral health workers, registered nurses, and healthcare support workers. According to the authors, the high risk for drug overdose among healthcare workers underscores the need for new initiatives to reduce healthcare worker stress, prevent burnout, identify at-risk workers, and when necessary, accelerate their access to confidential substance use evaluation and treatment. In 2019, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved the first generic maintenance inhaler for asthma and COPD. The inhaler, Wixella Inhub, is a substitutable version of the dry powder inhaler, Advair Discus. When approving complex generic products like inhalers, the FDA applies a special weight of evidence approach. In this case, manufacturers were required to perform a randomized control trial in patients with asthma, but not COPD, although the product received approval for both indications. Researchers from Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School conducted a propensity score match cohort study of 10,012 match pairs using either the generic or brand name inhaler for COPD. The authors found that compared with brand name use, generic use was associated with a nearly identical incidence of first moderate or severe COPD exacerbation. They also report that the use of generic inhaler was associated with similar rates of first pneumonia hospitalization as the brand name reference inhaler. According to the authors, their study adds important new data supporting the clinical equivalence of generic and brand name inhalers in a group of patients who are not included in clinical trials leading to generic version approval. New Annals in the Clinic provides a detailed summary of contraceptive methods and presents evidence-based discussion points that physicians can use to initiate a dialogue with their patients of reproductive potential. The timing of this release is crucial as pregnancy-associated mortality is on the rise, abortion access is decreasing, and the mini-pill has just been approved for over-the-counter use in the United States. The review suggests shared decision-making between physicians and patients. It includes reference to the PATH questionnaire on parenting and pregnancy attitudes and timing, a brief question-and-answer tool that provides a framework for discussing reproductive desires. For patients who desire contraception, the paper outlines the benefits, harms, and efficacy of several available methods. A reference table provides an at-a-glance reference for busy clinicians. The paper includes a section on emergency contraception methods, including counseling on medical and surgical abortion. In an accompanying editorial, cardiologist Dr. Amy Sarma argues that preconception and contraceptive counseling has never been more important. She believes that all clinicians who care for patients of reproductive potential should become comfortable discussing pregnancy intent, preconception risk assessment, and contraceptive counseling. Such conversations should not be restricted to primary care, gynecology, or women's health programs, as many people of reproductive potential never present to such setting. She says that all encounters with patients of reproductive potential present opportunities to help them realize their pregnancy goals and avoid unintended pregnancy. Next is a study that found that Medicare patients who received social needs case management had a 3% increase in primary care visits. These findings suggest that increased access to social needs management could play an important role in increasing primary care and reducing hospitalization. Researchers from the University of California, Berkeley School of Public Health conducted a secondary analysis of a study that assigned Medicaid beneficiaries with high risk for acute care to use social needs case management or to be observed in the control group. 
The goal was to evaluate the impact of social needs, case management, intervention on use of outpatient healthcare, behavioral health services, and jail intakes. The researchers found that the intervention group had significantly higher rates of primary care visits compared with the control group. No differences were found between the treatment groups for specialty care visits, behavioral health visits, psychiatric emergency visits, or jail intakes. The authors say that case management could increase primary care use by flexibly helping patients overcome social barriers to care. In a new Annals Beyond the Guidelines feature, an infectious disease specialist and a gastroenterologist discuss the benefits and risks of different approaches for C. diff infection. The experts consider clinical practice guidelines and provide rationale for how their recommendations may or may not fall within those guidelines. The experts discuss their treatment recommendations based on the specific case of a 48-year-old woman with severe infection. Go to annals.org to watch the grand rounds, read the article, and earn CME and MLC credit. Weight gain and hypertension are well-known adverse effects of treatment with high-dose glucocorticoids. Many patients with rheumatoid arthritis are on low-dose glucocorticoids long-term, leading to concern about whether exposure to lower doses also puts patients at risk for these adverse effects. Next is a report of a study that evaluated the effects of long-term glucocorticoid treatment with less than 7.5 milligrams per day prednisone equivalent in rheumatoid arthritis. The study is a pooled analysis of five randomized controlled trials that compared low-dose glucocorticoids to no glucocorticoids. Both groups could use concomitant treatment with disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs and had about two years of follow-up. The researchers analyzed data from 1,112 participants. Both groups gained weight in two years, but glucocorticoids led on average to 1.1 kilogram more weight gain than control treatment. Mean arterial pressure increased by about 2 milligrams of mercury in both groups with no significant between-group difference. There was no difference between groups in the numbers of patients who had changes in the number of antihypertensive drugs. The authors conclude that low-dose glucocorticoids taken over two years for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis increased weight by about 1 kilogram but did not increase blood pressure. Cardiovascular disease mortality is persistently higher in the black population than the other race and ethnic groups in the U.S. The next article reports a study that sought to determine whether social, behavioral, and metabolic risk factors mitigate racial disparities in cardiovascular disease mortality and to assess the contribution of these risk factors to cardiovascular disease mortality in the U.S. general population. Data on demographic, social, behavioral, and metabolic factors were from the NHANES survey. 1999 to 2018, and included a nationally represented sample of 50,808 individuals aged 20 years and older. The researchers ascertained cardiovascular deaths by linkage to the National Death Index through 2019. Over an average of 9.4 years of follow-up, 2,598 cardiovascular disease deaths were confirmed. In a multivariable Cox regression model stratified by NHANES cycle and adjusted for age, sex, race, and social, behavioral, and metabolic risk factors simultaneously, individuals who are unemployed, had lower family income, did not own a home, were not married nor living with a partner, were current smokers, reported no leisure time physical activity, slept less than six or more than eight hours per day, had obesity, hypertension, or diabetes, or had an albumin to creatinine ratio greater than 30 or an estimated glomerular filtration rate less than 60, were at a significantly higher risk for cardiovascular disease mortality. After adjusting for these risk factors, hazard ratios 
of cardiovascular disease mortality for black individuals compared to white individuals decreased from 1.54 to 0.86. The researchers concluded that social, behavioral, and metabolic risk factors fully explain the black-white difference in cardiovascular disease mortality and that hypertension, albuminuria, physical inactivity, low family income, and reduced kidney function were the leading risk factors for cardiovascular disease mortality in the U.S. population. In the U.S., clinicians and institutions have a right to object to providing services if doing so violates their moral or religious beliefs. Most commonly, it is Catholic institutions, which comprise approximately one out of every six hospital beds in the U.S., that invoke institutional conscientious objection and refuse to provide some medical treatment, such as contraception, sterilization, and abortion. However, many Americans are unaware of these objections, and most Catholic hospitals fail to provide adequate advance notice of these restrictions. The debate over conscientious objection in healthcare arises because of the tension between protecting the moral integrity of clinicians and upholding professional obligations to provide legal, safe, and effective medical care. The authors of a new commentary argue that balancing this tension requires, at minimum, a responsibility on behalf of objecting institutions to provide advanced notification to the patient populations they serve. Advanced notification requires the reasonable attempt to inform patients of restrictions prior to the clinical encounter. Currently, only the state of Washington legally requires institutions to provide advanced notification. The commentary authors believe that it is in the best interest of patients, clinicians, and institutions for Catholic healthcare institutions to improve advanced notification. Go to annals.org to read the commentary and view a video of the authors discussing their perspective. I want to note one of the new On Being a Doctor essays that you'll find if you go to annals.org. The title is Bialystok Horses. The author grew up hearing a version of a Yiddish folktale about a Bialystok horse. Briefly, the tale goes like this. A peasant has a reliable horse he uses to bring passengers to and from the city of Bialystok. One day, to maximize profits and efficiency, he decides to feed the horse less and less food and water. Initially, he is wildly successful and thrilled with his miracle horse. One does not need to be a veterinarian to see how it ends. The horse grows weak and dies. As a primary care doctor, the author fears that primary care doctors are Bialystok horses, being asked to do more with less, lacking the respect of the systems they work in, their subspecialty colleagues, and payers. As a primary care doctor, I found his points on target. If you're a primary care doctor, I encourage you to read this essay and post a comment letting us know if you feel the same way. Also new are the latest episodes of Annals Consult Guys and the Annals on Call podcast. The Consult Guys discuss management of dual antiplatelet therapy in a patient undergoing colonoscopy, and the topic of the new Annals on Call podcast is medical marijuana. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll go to annals.org to take a look at some of the new material I've highlighted here. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster vaccine recombinant adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com.